Well, good morning, everybody. Um, I, we sung that fourth song, uh, Speak, O Lord, uh, and I, I love the words and the truth there that as we come together, we're here to hear from God, and He speaks to us in multiple ways, of course, but His Word uh, is how He ultimately speaks to us, and from that, every other form of how we hear Him der is derived. He speaks to us through His Word, His living Word. He's a God who's alive and He's active uh, in so many ways. He wants to speak to us. And so we, as a church, value being in His Word. And, and by the way, if you joined us uh, late, my name is Paul Buckley, one of the pastors here. Um, and we are going through a series on worshiping God together, learning about this important thing that we're called to, this ultimate thing, actually, uh, our ultimate purpose, our chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And we do that as we worship. That's what worship is. Uh, and we do that corporately. So we're looking through Scripture together at ways that we're taught how to worship together. And so God speaks to us. And today we're going to be looking at the topic that uh, worshiping together as forgiven sinners. So I'll be in 1 John chapter 1. You can turn there. I'll be in other places as well. But let me ask you a question. When you go out to a restaurant, do you usually read reviews before you go? Do you get on Yelp or Google and read reviews? Yes, most of us. We do. Peg and I do. Um, and we find it very helpful in choosing the best restaurant. Um, we're not super foodies, but I guess we're, we're discerning enough that we want to know the best place. Um, reviews can be helpful. Reviews can also lead you astray, though, right? Um, one of the ways that you can be led astray is through reading a really negative review of a restaurant. I don't know if you've ever had it happen that you hear good things about a restaurant and you read the reviews and there's a really negative one there. And, and all of a sudden, uh, you're kind of poisoned with your ability to see that as a good choice and you, you move on. I've noticed something that's helped me filter through some of the negative reviews. Some of them are... are are good reviews. Other times they're not helpful. Um, and what I've noticed is some of the people who give negative reviews just seem to have a, a low tolerance for any sort of problem at the restaurant. Um, and sometimes, I don't know their hearts, but it seems that there's maybe an entitlement attitude. Um, and so there was something that they expected and it wasn't met. And so then they, like, they write this, this you know, terrible review about the place. Um, and and it, it, that attitude, that perspective, that outlook um, has an influence on the review and I would expect as well would an, inf an influence, a great influence on their experience at that restaurant, right? Um, that sort of attitude. What I want to draw from that is that our basic outlook and sense of self has a huge influence on your experience. Your basic outlook and sense of self will have a huge influence on your experience, not only at restaurants, but everywhere. And most important and relevant to the topic today, your outlook and sense of self will have a huge influence on your experience in worshiping together in the church. And so I want to look at an essential outlook that is to pervade everything we think about ourself and life, and is meant to deliver us to a perspective that I think will make a huge difference in what it means to worship God together. Of course, 
You know the title already. This perspective is that we worship together as forgiven sinners. We worship together as forgiven sinners. And I would submit to you this is a necessary and essential perspective to have if you are to understand what we're doing and enjoy it. And your lack of enjoyment perhaps is directly related to your lack of understanding this key point. And so we're going to look at 1 John. We're going to look at other scriptures. And I hope to convince you, not that this is my idea, but this is God's idea. And this is for you individually. This isn't just theory, but this is speaking to you directly because God cares about your worship experience. So let's pray. Ask him to speak to us and we'll look at his word. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you love us enough to address us and correct us and to lead us in your ways, to to lead us in your truth. And Lord, you are interested in our joy in you, in the truth. So I pray, Lord, help me to rightly teach and explain your word and to rightly demonstrate, even in my own heart and in my own expressions, the goodness and glory of your word and this wonderful truth. Change our lives through your word. Today we pray. Glorify your worthy name we pray. Amen. First John chapter 1 verses 5 through 10. We went through this series last year. but This is such a key text for this topic. It says, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you. That God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. This passage and many others in scripture teaches us that we worship together as forgiven sinners. I want to dig into this statement and look at each aspect of it that We worship together as forgiven sinners. I want to talk about the fact that we're sinners. And then I want to talk about the fact that we're forgiven. And then I want to talk about the the fact that we're called to worship as forgiven sinners. So those are the three points we'll work through as we look at God's law. John speaks about this reality here that we are sinners. He presses us to see. To see that it's essential to realize that we are sinners. We have sin. And he comes against this idea, this claim that we would, I think, have naturally. That No, 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 we're, we're not that bad. We, we don't wrestle with sin. We've overcome that. We've moved on. He makes it very clear that that's not acceptable. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Present tense. If we have no sin now, we deceive ourselves now. Present tense. The truth is. Is not in us if we say that. We, even worse, make God out to be a liar. We're contradicting God himself. His word is not in us. These are all the things that John is saying that 
are true about the one who denies that they have sin, that they are a sinner. It's essential to see for truth's sake, for following Jesus' sake, for the sake of the church, for the sake of worship, that we are sinners. But we ought to back up for a moment and define what sin is because it's not something that we maybe understand in our culture as well. There are a lot of connotations. If you watch television and stuff, the the word sin is usually used in a comical or derisive way, right? Um, And so we ought to define it. What is sin? What, What does the word say? Well, Wayne Grudem sums up the Bible by saying that sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. Sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God. So that would be like the Ten Commandments and elsewhere. The moral law of God in act, attitude, so not just what you do, but also your attitude or nature. So even your disposition, before you even feel or do anything, just your orientation, your disposition. So that is what sin is. And of course, this is uh, confirmed by Scripture. You can look throughout Scripture. We could do a whole study on sin in Scripture. Scripture talks a lot about it. First John goes on to say in chapter 3, um, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practice lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Same thing that Wayne Grudem said. It's being against the law of God, which the commands of God, the good and right commands of God. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 3 that for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's actually a parallel sort of statement that he's saying to sin is to fall short of the glory of God. It's to miss the mark. It's to fall short of God's perfect standard. It's to violate the standard. It's to transgress against the standard. It's to fail to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. What is the sum of the law of God? How did Jesus sum it up from Scripture, right? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the first commandment. To love God with all of your being. Why? Because He's worthy of all of your being and more. He's that good. He's that glorious. And he's been that good and that glorious in your life no matter what you've gone through. No matter what your background might be, if we only had eyes to see. He is worthy of that sort of love and he loves himself with a deep and intense and infinite love. And so, of course, we're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second command is like it. It's connected to it. It follows because human beings are made in God's image. Therefore, we must Love one another as we love ourselves. And this, to the same degree that you love yourself, you ought to love others. We naturally love ourselves, even if we despise the, what's wrong with us. There, that still comes from a love for ourselves. We naturally love ourselves. And so the standard is that we ought to, we must love others as we love ourselves in the same degree and intensity. This is how you sum up the law. That's all good stuff, of course, right? Who would deny that that's right and true? And, and yet the Bible says that all have fallen short of the glory of God. How well have you done in the past few days with this standard? How well have you done today? Did you sing and worship God and thank Him for what He's done for you with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, did you? I, I didn't. 
I want to. He's stirred in me this new life, and I want to do that, but I know I've fallen short. We all have fallen short. We all have sin. Sin affects us, even in affecting the degree with which we can love God and give our all to Him. This is the reality. The Bible does not pull punches on this reality. Matter of fact, the storyline of the whole Bible contains a key theme of our sinfulness. It's there in the very beginning, of course. Adam and Eve, they're not made sinful. They're made in the image of God. But in God's wisdom and providence, they are given a situation where they actually have everything to enjoy. They have all of creation before them. They are to enjoy all that God puts before them. Endless opportunities, a wonderful purpose in life. The glory of God everywhere. They, they live in, in this place, this garden where they're in a fellowship with the Lord. Just full of goodness. And there's only one thing they're told not to do. Only one thing. Among all these other things that they're free to do. So the law of God for them was very simple actually. It was summed up in this. Don't eat that tree. If you trust me and love me, you won't eat that tree. You'll enjoy everything else. Don't do that. And we know that they decided and under temptation from the devil, the liar, the deceiver, that it was better for them to eat the tree and to love God and trust God. And they plunged mankind into sinfulness and rebellion. And, and every, ever since that fall, we have all had this, this disposition in us to rebel and to not love the Lord with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and not to love others. So very in the beginning, the storyline of the Bible makes it very clear that there's something terribly wrong with mankind. There's something terribly glorious with mankind too, and that theme is throughout the Bible. We mustn't neglect that. So worm theology that says, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a worm, I'm nothing, is not biblical because we are made in the image of God. We're of, of, of really infinite value in that. So we don't neglect that truth. But this image has been corrupted by sin and affected by sin. There's something terribly wrong and something that's supposed to be terribly good, awesomely good and glorious. So the storyline of the Bible starts that way and then continues. It's a storyline of God actually relentlessly pursuing sinners because he's merciful and gracious and full of goodness. And so he chases mankind throughout the storyline of the Bible. You don't see mankind seeking God. You see God seeking mankind. And so that's the storyline. And, and it develops into the, the people of God in the Old Testament. God pursues them. And the, the 12 tribes and under Moses' leadership, there's a covenant established. And it's a covenant meant to bring redemption, to, meant to rescue sinners and speak of their forgiveness. And so God in that designs a place of worship. And that place, the tabernacle and then the temple, that place of worship, of enjoyment of God, has front and center, you can't miss it, an obvious statement about this reality that we are sinners. There's an altar there, right? Right there in front of the temple. Before you enter in, there's an altar there. And what goes on in that altar? Sacrifice. Animals who are put to death, who shed their blood, who are who are offered up, who die on that altar. Why? To speak of the need for atonement, to speak of the need for our sins to be covered. Because before a God who's good and always lives to, to walk in His moral law, our sins are very serious. And yet God wants us to know Him. And so 
he addresses that, but it's front and center. And so to know the Lord in the Old Testament is to be faced with this reality at the beginning that I'm a sinner. I come as a sinner to God. I don't come as one who's worthy. I don't come as one who is made in the image of God and has no sin. I don't come as one who a long time ago stopped sinning and now I'm perfect in this life. That altar is a reminder of the reality that we are sinners and we come together to worship as forgiven sinners. Now, we would rather something else be there, wouldn't we? We'd rather walk in and have, instead of an altar right there, reminds us of our need for forgiveness, we'd rather have a reminder of how good we are, how wonderful we are. And there are statements like that, too. They have their place. Fearfully and wonderfully made. Psalm 139, right? There's statements in the Word. We are made in the image of God. And that's what we'd like to be front and center. And then maybe just put the altar off over here somewhere. A little tiny altar. Feature this stuff. This makes me feel good. Put that away. That's what we want naturally. But that's not what we need. We need an altar. Front and center. To address the reality that before a holy God, we are sinners. And if we only saw the, the depth of it, we would understand fully how good it is that the altar is front and center. A place of reconciliation and atonement so our sins can be fully and finally dealt with. And of course, that altar speaks of the ultimate sacrifice. It's Christ himself, God in the flesh, who had to come to be that sacrifice. To pay for our sins. And so the New Testament believer also has something front and center for the most part in Christianity. We put it on our steeples. We have it behind our altars. It's in our artwork and in our jewelry. It's the cross. And the cross is not a pleasant thing. The cross is a horrible thing. Now in our culture it's been transformed, but, but in the day of the, of the New Testament... It was an awful thing because the cross was a, a place where despicable people were put to death. People who deserved to die went to the cross. It was a place of shame. You were, you were crucified in front of everybody. You were naked on that cross. It was shame. It's a place of torture. It's an awful place. It was actually a swear word in its day. You did not say the word cross in good company. They understood how awful the cross was. And yet that's front and center for us. And that's a good thing. The cross is a reminder of the reality that we are sinners who need to be forgiven before we're brought in. We can only come through facing our sin and receiving forgiveness. And by the way, this isn't going to stop when we go to heaven. You might think, well, when we go to heaven, you know, there'll be no more sin. And isn't that going to be glorious? No more sin, no more sinful nature, no more struggles. But that doesn't mean we stop remembering that we are forgiven sinners. So, Revelation 5, a picture of worship at the end. It says this, and they sang a new song saying... Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. And speaking of all of God's plans that are going to come about. Worthy are you for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God. From every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. 
That's the people of God worshiping. And, and how are they worshiping? They're worshiping by remembering that you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and nation and tongue. You worship, you ransomed me by your blood so that I can come into your presence. So we're never going to stop remembering that we are forgiven sinners. Last week we heard from Pastor Mike, 1 Timothy 1, that passage about unsound doctrine and sound doctrine. Paul calls Timothy and God calls us through this letter to sound doctrine. And how is sound doctrine summarized? If you remember from last week, Paul says this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. What is the core of sound doctrine? This reality that we are sinners in need of rescue and Jesus has come to save sinners. And then Paul adds, of whom, who I am the foremost. And you might think, what's going on with Paul? I mean, is he really the foremost? Or does he have like a, some sort of, you know, like, I don't know, syndrome where he thinks he's worse than everybody else. What, what is, why does Paul say that? Well, if you read through 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy and, and elsewhere, Paul always has a reason to say things. And he often is modeling to others what it looks like to walk in the truth he's talking about. And what I think Paul's doing, I think it's pretty clear, is he's saying, when you get this truth, when you get this doctrine, when you understand that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, when you get it for yourself, you are going to say with Paul, I'm the worst one I know. And yet he's come and he's rescued me. I am the foremost. It's not somebody else. I don't look at others and think, that guy's the foremost. This woman, she's the foremost. When you get this truth, when you worship as a forgiven sinner, you will say, I am the foremost and I'm forgiven. That's what Paul's modeling here. This goes against the grain though. We don't like to say that, but this is what we're called to. This is the truth. This is what Scripture confronts us around. We are the worst of sinners as far as we are concerned. And it's opposite of what we like, right? That, that whole true cliche, actually, it's been proven. 80% of drivers think that they're better than most, right? The math doesn't work, right? Because so, you can't have 20% of the people being most. But that's who we are. 80% of the people think they're less of a sinner than most. It's the reality. That's, that's our orientation. So we're confronted in, in Scripture again and again. Paul, and we're going to be going into Romans in the, later in the fall. Uh, Romans chapter 2, Paul addresses this. He, he says in uh, chapter 2, verse 1, from the New Living Translation, a great translation for personal devotion, by the way. You may think you can condemn such people, wild people, but you are just as bad and you have no excuse. When you say they are wicked and should be punished, you are condemning yourself. For you who judge others do the very same things. And I would submit that that is true. I know it's true in my life. Before I came to know the Lord, I was, um, I was a God-fearer in some sense of that word. I went to church every Sunday. I actually went to my youth group every Sunday night into high school when none of my buddies did. I still went. And I remember one time they had this group come 
that were from, I think they were from like Somerville. And, um, and they got up there and they, I think they led us in songs and they just seemed really excited about Jesus and I thought they were just a bunch of dopes. And then they got up there and gave their testimonies of what Jesus had done for them. And, and I just remember one guy in particular, he was like, I used to, I was doing drugs, partying, getting chased by the police, and I found Jesus and he changed me. And my reaction was, well, I didn't say this to anybody, but I thought to myself, what a loser. You know, his life's a mess. Sure, he needs Jesus. And that's what I dismissed him and the whole group with that. They're a bunch of losers who need Jesus, you know. Weak people need Jesus. If you had known me at the time and had known my thoughts, you would have said what Paul says here. You who judge others do the very same things. I was doing the very same things. I was doing drugs, partying, living a violent life, running from the police, not always successfully. My life was a mess. And yet I, I went to this thing and I said, what a loser. And that's the reality. And, and God is good. He confronts us with the reality of our sin in his word. God opposes the proud. So if we are going to say, no, no, we're, we're, we're okay, we're good, we're, we don't have sin. Oh, we only used to have sin. He will oppose you. But he gives grace to the humble. He gives grace. He wants to help you as you admit that you are a sinner, as you face that reality. That's how you get help. If somebody had cancer and the doctor showed the MRI or whatever, the CAT scan, the PET scan, and the person was like, no, 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 that can't be right. I feel good. I've always eaten the right food. I've always exercised. I'm too young. There's got to be something wrong with the scan here. And if you were that person's friend, you would be deeply concerned, wouldn't you? What's going on? You're in denial. And you're not getting the help. There's a, there's a potential cure for you should you engage it. But you first have to admit you've got a problem. And our problem, most severe problem, as bad as cancer is, it's not cancer. It's sin. And God in his goodness confronts us that we have this problem of sin and he provides a cure for us. But we only get to the cure if we admit our sin. You can only come to the light and walk in the light if you confess your sins. And this isn't just like I confess my sin once. This is a lifestyle of confessing. It's living as one who admits their sin. Yes, I'm a sinner. It's part of who I am. Now, I'm also made in the image of God and all these other things. Yes, indeed, but this is part of who I am. Until I go to be with the Lord, I'm a sinner. And I need a cure. This is who I am. And so I come to the Lord as a needy sinner. Can you embrace this reality? Can you let others into this reality as well, appropriately? Because you're to confess your sins. It isn't by yourself. It's corporately with others. Appropriately, of course. Can you let others into that? Can you understand that worship together is as forgiven sinners? So as we come together, our presence and reciting the truths and singing what we sing together, we are confessing our sins together. 
Can you embrace that? Can you come each Sunday as a needy sinner? If you do, your experience of worship and church life will be so much more meaningful. We worship as forgiven sinners next. Of course, I've been talking about that already. We need to admit the problem. We need to admit that we are sinners. And 1 John 1 is just full of of these things. This wonderful way of laying it out. John uses these if-then statements. And and first, woven throughout our if-then negative statements, if you lie, if you say you have no sin, then this, then that, that you deceive yourselves, we talk about that, but then next, the positive ones, if you could put the next one up. If we, if we walk in the light, if we walk in the light as he's in the light, walking in the light means admitting our sins, being honest, coming to Jesus, trusting his death on the cross for us. If we walk in the light as he's in the light, then we have fellowship with one another. If you live this way, if you live as a sinner who comes to Jesus, you will have fellowship with one another, and then the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all our sin. If we confess our sins, if, then what? He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate. We have an advocate. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, the only righteous, the fully righteous one who has offered himself up. He is the propitiation for our sins. He is that sacrifice on the altar to to satisfy God's perfect justice. When we speak of satisfying the wrath of God, that we don't mean that God is just peeved by our sin or something and you've got to settle him down. No, he's holy. He's patient. He's measured. But he's just. And his attitude towards our sin is hatred because it's wrong. And so Christ comes to to satisfy perfect justice as this offering, as the righteous one given in our place, not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. So there's forgiveness in Jesus. Jesus himself is our righteousness, is our forgiveness. And so the altar doesn't just say we're sinners, but the altar says you're forgiven sinners. The cross just doesn't say we're sinners, but it says we're forgiven sinners as we walk in light, as we come to Jesus, as we look to him, admitting our need, we are forgiven sinners. This is amazing. This cure is not a partial cure. This is a full cure. Received and effective the moment You simply turn away from pride. Turn away from self-sufficiency. Turn away from sin. Turn away from hiding your sin and resisting the truth that you are a sinner. When you turn from that to trust in Christ, that very moment, this is all for you. Complete forgiveness. The cure is full and final at that moment. And the rest of your life will be God working out the truth of that, the ramifications of that. An amazing offer that we have. Uh, Just the other week, we got to visit a wealthy friend of a friend. This friend of a friend I I don't know personally. He is a billionaire. Um, He's also, from what I know, a very gracious person. Um, Made his money through hard work and uh, inventions. And he continues to work, actually. He continues to lead a company and doing things so he's not done 
I know if, if I had a billion dollars, I might just think, okay, time to retire. But um, we got to enjoy the, his family's property. Uh, they built a waterfront uh, home that's really a campus. It's like a resort for hospitality. It just shows you how gracious he is. It's this whole kind of campus. And it was amazing. <laughs> um, big, beautiful room with kitchen. And I mean, he, it was the size of this room. Uh, just beautiful, looking out over the water, uh, pool, hot tub, many rooms. Imagine having a place like this, and you walk down the hall, and there's master suites and bunks for the bunk rooms for the kids. It was just this wonderful place. We really enjoyed it, um, and it made me think of heaven a little bit in my father's house or many mansions, right? Um, if I had a billion dollars and I wanted to be gracious and hospitable, I don't think I could do as well as this man had done and his family. Anyhow, that's all to set up an illustration. Imagine that you were down and out. You are struggling with addiction. You're unemployed, you're homeless, and just having a hard time. And a friend like this came along and said, I will give you a home, employment, health care, inheritance, and a place to live here. I'll give you all these things, but there's one catch. You have to first admit your need and then receive the help I offer you. Receive the help that's there for you. That's all you have to do. Would you do it? I hope you would. Well, it's an illustration of what we have in the Lord. The reality is that we are poor, blind, and naked spiritually. We are desperate, left to ourselves, and God has offered us something better than this gentleman's property and inheritance. He's offered us his very son, and that's the other part of it. He's given his very son to win us back. His son came and lived the righteous life that we should have lived, offered up that life for us on the cross. The Father has loved us from time, uh, before time began, and he's promised never to leave us. All these things are ours, and all we need to simply say as a people, day by day, I'm a sinner who needs forgiveness. That's what it means to confess your sins, to live in this. And, and we receive and we live in all that he has for us as a result. This is the truth, being a forgiven sinner. Tim Keller says it in such a helpful way. He says the gospel, the good news of Christ is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. This is the good news for forgiven sinners. So stop defending. Start confessing. Start confessing with others. Start learning to live a life of worshiping together with God's people as a forgiven sinner. And that's the final point, worshiping as forgiven sinners. We're called to worship, and the Bible's full of calls to worship that are acknowledging and incorporating this truth. It's throughout the Bible. The Psalms, this songbook of the Old Testament people, 150 songs, that's what they are, are full of songs about the reality that we're sinners who need forgiveness. And there are many. Psalm 51, you're probably familiar with this. Have mercy on me, O God. This would have been sung originally. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. 
For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take me not from your Holy Spirit. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. That's worship of a forgiven sinner. Of course, our text today as well. 1 John 1, 5-10, this idea of, of confessing, walking in the light and confessing our sins. John's not just saying, and I don't think he's even, his main point is, you individually, on your own. He's speaking to the people of God corporately and saying, guys, this is how you worship. You worship by being in the light together and confessing together and remembering Christ, your advocate, together. This is how you worship as forgiven sinners. The church has used prayers throughout history as part of worship of this. Traditional prayer of confession often used in the beginning of worship services in Christian churches is this. Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from your ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against your holy laws we have left undone those things which we ought to have done, and we have done those things which we ought not to have done. And apart from your grace, there is no health in us. O oh Lord, have mercy upon us. Spare all those who confess their faults. Restore all those who are penitent, according to your promises declared to all people in Christ Jesus our Lord. And grant, O oh most merciful Father, for his sake, that we may now live a godly, righteous, and sober life to the glory of your holy name. Amen. In many churches, that is a regular prayer at the beginning of their worship time. It's because they value this truth of worshiping together as forgiven sinners. Now, we do this, we sing about it, right? We just did. Jesus, thank you. Your blood has washed away my sin. Jesus, thank you. The Father's wrath completely satisfied. Jesus, thank you. Once your enemy, now seated at your table. Jesus, thank you. Before the throne of God above. The song, when, the, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. To look on him and pardon me. We recite it in doctrinal statements like the... Uh, Heisenberg Catechism. Question, what is your only comfort in life and death? The answer, that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood. And he has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my Heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. 
Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. This is to characterize our worship together, our fellowship together. It is an essential and important part of our fellowship to remind one another that we are forgiven sinners. To hear one another's confession. And the first thing not to be to say, let's work on how to change that, as important as that might be. But the first thing to say, I just want to remind you, you are completely forgiven by Christ. And you no longer need to live with that sin characterizing your life. You are not merely a sinner. You are a forgiven sinner. Set free from sin. In Jesus. Beloved of the Father. We are to make it a part of our fellowship. So as I conclude, I started out with this idea that your outlook will have a big impact on your experience at a restaurant. I made the connection. The same was true for Sunday worship and your involvement with the church as well. If you come to worship and if you are part of a church with this perspective that you worship together as a forgiven sinner, you will find even when the music isn't quite right because the guitar wasn't hooked up or the battery was dead in it, even when the preaching maybe goes too long, it's still an amazing privilege and joy. To worship as a forgiven sinner with God's people. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord. We thank you that you love us so much. You want us to know this point and have it shape our lives. We ask you to forgive us for the times that we approach church and life with an entitlement attitude. We thank you that you are good enough to make us face the reality that we are sinners who have fallen short. But you also are good enough, and this is amazing, Jesus, to die in our place so we could be free and fully forgiven and enter into new life in the power of your resurrection. Oh Lord, shape us to be a people, individually and corporately, who worship as forgiven sinners, we pray. Amen.